Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 257, His Blood Crieth Against Thee. There are times when it is important to admit failure. This is one of those times. I have had a few questions about the phrase evangelicals and my use of it. The reason I've been using that term is simply as a way to avoid overusing the word Protestant and using that word too early. So the word Protestant derived from the Diet of Speyer in 1529, but it really isn't in vogue until Elizabeth's time in England. So, Evangelical, in this context, the way I'm using it, means a reformist, a proto-Protestant. The reason that's important is that still the evangelicals hoped against hope that the whole church could be reformed rather than having the schism. OK then, looking back to the 17th of June, we barely stumbled over the line of Henry's last breath, grasping the hand of his archbishop, one of the few men to whom he had genuinely and constantly given his friendship. Outside, while all this grasping was going on, many of the most powerful men of the kingdom did some milling about, as you do. Although it appears from a later letter that two of those powerful councillors slipped away into the gallery and had a cold-hearted chat about what might happen next when the old chap did croak his last. Namely, William Paget and Edward Seymour. Hmm, what could they be planning, I wonder, out there alone in the gallery? Incidentally, I discovered a thing the other day about dying kings and queens. You might be aware of the traditional proclamation on the death of a monarch. The king is dead, long live the king, or the queen is dead, long live the queen. And the tradition thereby is associated that while the individuals are required to shuffle off this mortal coil, the spirit of the institution they represent is unceasing, undying, 
unblinking, like the eye of Sauron, ladies and gentlemen, always looking at us, the eye of Sauron. Well, I learned that this is the genesis of the royal we, because the person of the living monarch has two bits to them, the physical body of the current monarch and the spirit of the undying one. You all probably knew that. It's taken me 54 years. This definitively means that your neighbour, Mr Bouquet, who gets a bit above himself, cannot start calling himself we. Anyway, I digress. When all the hand-grasping was over and the king had breathed his last, you might imagine that the great and powerful councillors would hitch up their grand robes of state and leg it out into the court, yelling that the king was dead, he was dead, he's gone. But that, ladies and gentlemen, is why I would never be a royal councillor, because these men had discretion capital D. Instead of blurting, they discussed the best course of action with serious faces on. The people in control were the 16 executors appointed by Henry's will. Edward Seymour and William Paget appear to have started politicking early among these men, whispering in shell-likes, furrowing brows, murmuring, briefing. Gosh, 16 seems like a large group to run a country, don't you think? (laughs) Hmm, wouldn't you think it better to have one chap in control? Awfully difficult to make decisions with committees, you know. You get camels instead of horses. However, the first job was to tell the wife and kids, but also to secure the person of the new king. After all, in the eyes of many of the powers of Europe, like the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor, just for starters, Edward was just a bastard. The new monarch of England was Mary, the only legitimate child of Henry VIII as far as they were concerned. So, in England, the process had to be managed properly. So, nobody was told about his death. Oh, he's fine, fine. Well, hasn't said a lot recently, but he's fine. Or moved, actually. But, you know, absolutely fine. I'm sure he's fine. And while they all said that, Seymour set off from Westminster to talk to the kiddies. He collected Edward and Elizabeth, and they all arrived back at court where Catherine Parr had already been told, and Mary was then also informed, everyone confessed themselves gutted, whatever they really thought. Now that Seymour was back, it was all systems go, and the will was read out by a tearful Rottersley to the House of Commons, which was then automatically dissolved, as it must be on the death of a monarch. This was the 31st of January, 1547, three days after Henry VIII had actually died. The executors then met. Now, it used to be the rubric that the 16 executors were a balance. A balance of reformers and traditionists as far as religion was concerned, and that the group had been designed to prevent any one person from gaining control. More recently, the balance of historical opinion has shifted away from that. The absence particularly of Stephen Gardiner suggests that Henry intended the reformers, the evangelicals, to hold the whip hand although the presence of doughty defenders of tradition such as Cuthbert Tunstall also suggests that Henry did not entirely wish babies to be ejected along with their bathwater. It's been noted that the will allowed the executors to agree anything they thought, quote, meet, necessary or convenient, and allowed for majority decisions as well. And so, Henry certainly hadn't tried very hard to stop one person gaining control, if that had ever been his intention. Anyway, When the will was read out that 31st of January, one of the first decisions the executors took was to decide that Seymour should be their leader and bear the title of Lord Protector. 
no doubt, Seymour modestly shook his head and said something along the lines of, Moi, no, 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 I couldn't possibly. No, no, modesty forbids. OK, go on then. Though it's reasonably clear that he'd lined up at least some influential members like Paget and Brown beforehand. It seems, though, that he was not elected entirely unopposed. So the likes of Thomas Rottersley, for example, argued hard against the idea, which was to prove a career-changing decision as it happens. But look, it's not an unreasonable decision to have a Lord Protector. The state ran better in those days when it had a clear leader, and we still seem to need one, and Seymour was the uncle of the king, an experienced councillor, a successful general, and so why not? Seems silly not to. Another reason why Seymour had been able to win through quite so easily became a little clearer with something of a hoot called the Affair of the Unfulfilled Gifts. Now this was a clause in Henry's will, which looked suspiciously squeezed in actually, which essentially said that Henry had all along been intending to hand out a bunch of honours and riches and land and stuff, but other things had just got in the way, you know, the newspaper, the weekly Sudoku, being hauled around on trams, dying, that sort of thing. Anthony Denny was prevailed upon to swear it had all been public and common knowledge what Henry had intended. Everybody knew there's nothing sneaky going on here, nothing to see, move along. And so Snouts happily descended troughwards, as Snouts are wont to do, and boots were duly filled, just to mix my metaphors. The nine-year-old King Edward happily signed up to the idea, and so honours were duly handed out, promotions made. Edward Seymour, Earl of Hertford, now became the Duke of Somerset. Thomas Rottersley, despite his objections, or who knows, maybe because of them, became Earl of Southampton. William Parr became Marcus of Northampton. John Dudley became Earl of Warwick. William Paget was given grants of land and made a baron. Even Thomas Cranmer received a grant. Judge as you will, this was Cranmer's first personal reward through all the years of the dispersal of church wealth. Good Lord. All was happiness and light. On the 15th of February, the old king was solemnly buried in St George's Chapel at Windsor and a massive tomb was requisitioned. And I mean, you know, big. Lots of marble, lots of twiddly bits. Edwards was crowned on Sunday the 20th of February with all the normal grandnesses and pageants and all that sort of thing. Now, it's been noted that it was Cranmer who subtly changed the coronation that Edward signed up to. The oath the young lad swore made the king's authority supreme in matters of religion. It's an aspect of Cranmer we've noted in Henry's reign, his firm belief that England's monarchs were supreme in matters of religion as well as matters secular. Again, the supremacy of monarchs is not a principle we're keen on now, but it clears Cranmer of many of the accusations of lack of principle. When he gave way to Henry's religious pronouncements later in his realm, Cranmer believed Henry had the authority to do so. There is a parallel in Cardinal Reginald Pole and the Pope, Pole had come to accept the principle of justification by faith alone, a part of Luther and Augustine's teachings. Now, when the council ruled against the principle, Pole was gutted, but accepted he could only tow the company line. Cranmer's coronation speech would set something of a tone for the reign. It is here that Cranmer started to use the language from the Bible that Edward should become the new Josiah. He spelled out what he must do to earn the title of a second Josiah, he must see that God is truly worshipped. He must destroy idolatry. He must remove the images. He must fight papal tyranny. A couple of things about this. 
our Thomas Cranmer had a bit of a spring in his step. He was 58 now, but here at last was his opportunity to spread his wings and fly away, high away to the sky. He had survived the toxic politics of Henry's reign, survived personal tax on his right to power and indeed his right to life. Now was his time. Time to throw back the duvet of politics and spring from the bed of equivocation, thrust his feet firmly into the slippers of decisive reformation. It's very likely that Cranmer and the reformers around him, men like his chaplain Nicholas Ridley and, like the new protector Somerset, had a specific agenda and plan for the Reformation that they wanted. And now, at last, the Evangelicals had squeezed their bony buttocks onto the driver's seat. Cranmer had a plan to tear down the old temple and build a new one in its place. Gentlemen, he might have said, we can rebuild this church, we have the technology, we have the capability to make the world's first bionic church. England will hold that church better than it was before, better, stronger, faster. That's not to say that we will see a straight line in the building of this new church, very far from it. But the halts and digressions will be driven by the need to bring the Conservatives with them, not because they had any doubt about what they wanted or where they wanted to end up. And in fact, Cranmer's speech is a good signal of that. So just a few days before, in fact, a church in London had been carpeted for tearing down images against the current rules of the church, which were still effectively Henry's. Obviously, I don't mean they'd installed a carpet. I mean, the local church officials were disciplined, though carpet would have been a nice touch. As in, every church will have a Bible in English and a nice applique rug. Anyway, so one day the church in Ironmonger Lane in London was given a ticking off for being too eager to tear down images. And before you could say Reformation, then here was the Archbishop of Canterbury telling the king that that's exactly what he needed. Stephen Gardiner was furious firing off outraged letters, but it's a good demonstration of the kind of thing that will happen and it will prove a remarkably effective strategy. One of the triumphs and, I suppose, tragedies of the short reign ahead was that Somerset and the council seem to have been determined to try as hard as they can to make sure that the increasing brutality of Henry's reign would not be repeated, that with the arrival of their new desire there would be a new freedom, a fresh start. The first parliament in November 1547 will be a good example of that, but for the moment the first act was about the Duke of Norfolk. His boat had come in, essentially. His execution had been scheduled for the very day that Henry died. The new regime cancelled this glittering event. Norfolk remained in the tower for the remainder of the reign. Edward's reign actually is notable for its absence of the burning of heretics and the relative lack of political executions. A fresh start, then. A conscious effort to generate a milder, more reasonable climate. However, that is not to say that the councillors who had argued and jostled under old King Henry suddenly worked together in peace and harmony. There were many political casualties, and by and large the ones to go were conservatives in a religious sense. Thomas Rottersley had argued against Somerset's promotion, and so Thomas Rottersley had to go. Somerset trumped up some charges about the dodgy selling of offices and he lost his seat on the council. He was for a while rusticated. After a couple of years, though, he would regain his seat, as it happens. And seriously, do we think this is the way it would have happened under Henry? I suspect Rottersley would have found himself explaining his actions to a burly chap with big muscles standing by a gallows pole. With Rottersley gone from the council, protector Somerset's position was tickety-boo, firmly placed in the hot seat but not everyone was happy with their chair once the music had stopped playing, and two of them 
were to be connected, Catherine Parr and Somerset's brother, Thomas Seymour. Catherine had expected to be involved in both the upbringing of her stepson and the management of the realm, and her expectation was far from unreasonable. I would even go as far as to say as that it was perfectly reasonable, if not even a gimme. She had, after all, been in a previous will in 1544, saying that she would be regent. And she had been regent already during Henry's last hazard in France. She was as certain that she would become regent as I am each year that this time Derby will be promoted to the premiership, and she was to be equally disappointed. This is a feature of English football, of course, a life of constant disappointment caused by inflated expectations, confirming my deeply held belief that the answer to a happy life is low aspirations. But hey, this is not a health self podcast, so onwards. We even have, I believe, a letter where Catherine signed herself Queen Regent. How embarrassing is that? But Henry had done the dirty on her. Somerset had no intention of unwinding such a nice decision, and so Catherine was suddenly Norman no-mates. She retired to her dower house at Chelsea. Obviously, if Footy had defined the move, she'd have moved to Pride Park, but clearly by going to Chelsea, Catherine announced her disinterest in good quality football. But just as every silvery lining has its cloud, so the reverse is true. In 1543, Catherine had struggled to choose between the path of righteousness and the path that rocks, and she had chosen to follow the path of righteousness and marry Henry, rather than pursue the younger, more dashing and dangerous in a different way, Thomas Seymour. And she had been a model of restraint and probity ever since, including her deeply reformist and Christian publications. I have in mind in what happens next an image of Catherine entering a club, soberly dressed, reaching the ubiquitous sparkly mirror ball, throwing off her black clothes to reveal sparkliness that would put Amma to shame and hitting that dance floor with a vengeance. Because Catherine really seems to lose her head from here, all sobriety deserts her. And as a first act of rebellion, her thoughts flew to her old paramour. Thomas Seymour would seem to have been uniquely undeserving of the affections of a person as impressive as Catherine Parr. In summary, all fur coat, no knickers, all mouth, no trousers. Actually, that's a little bit harsh. He had a reasonably successful military career against the French. It's just that in the Seymour family, it was Edward that seems to have got the brains and Thomas the looks, unlike the Crowther family where, well, you know, policy prevents me saying more, obviously, but you know what I'm saying. Seymour was flamboyant, but wild, and with a sense of entitlement that would have made Richard II look humble. Thomas was livid at the settlement, the settlement that saw his brother in control of state, not that he begrudged him that, actually, necessarily, but he felt that as a royal uncle, he should be governor of the king's person, and he thumped the table and bent the air of anyone he could find. He quoted precedent to support his case, which unfortunately came from the minority of Henry VI, Gloucester and Bedford, and even more than a hundred years later the memories were a bit painful. Any possibility of a recurrence of those days must be avoided, specifically the Duke of Bedford's haircut, an unforgivable moment in England's otherwise glorious history. Thomas Seymour's point was, and it was not ridiculous, that his brother should not be both the council boss, Lord Protector, and the King's Governor. Those jobs should be split, and he, Thomas, would have been the perfect choice as Governor. Anyway, the long and short is that Seymour and Catherine stuck away into the forest and tied the knot. We know not where and when that we'd like to be in a fly on the wall, even a blue-arsed one, but probably as early as May 1547 the deed was done. 
Well, when the news broke, you can only guess at the waves of righteous indignation that swept over the happy couple. Chins wobbled, skirts were drawn aside, backs were turned, the wrath of brothers passeth all understanding. Interestingly, Thomas had sought the advocacy of Princess Mary before the happy event, a particularly daft idea, and had been snubbed by that paragon of proper behaviour. When she heard the news that they'd gone ahead anyway, Princess Mary left Catherine's household immediately. Insult or injury number one was the indecent haste with which the Queen had moved on from the love of her revered father, the regrettably chunky Henry. The other insult or injury, though, was a more practical one. In the event that Catherine and Seymour lowered the lights, turned up the Barry Manilow and, you know, got it on, the resulting child could conceivably, <laughs> no pun intended, be Henry's. So, seriously, there were many long faces around. And there was no face longer, it appears, than that of Somerset's wife, Anne. Anne was described as a woman for many imperfections intolerable and for pride monstrous, subtle and violent which is, you know, not complimentary as a description, I think it's fair to say. Anne's Somerset's influence on history is sadly unknowable for all those reasons about the position of women in society and therefore not reported, as that we know about, but since she apparently ruled Somerset by persuasions cunningly intermixed with tears, it could be that her role was very significant. Anne hated Catherine. Chris Skidmore, the author of Edward VI, the Lost King of England, which I commend to you, relates an anecdote where the Duchess Anne and Queen Catherine got into a bit of a ding-dong about who had precedence at a particular event. And this is the sort of thing that really bothered your 16th century upper crusty. Catherine tried to insist that Anne should carry her train, and as far as Anne was concerned, she'd rather dine on droppings. And so finally, Catherine let it pass. Anne is recorded as saying, I am she that will teach her which is, you know, a little in your face. And Catherine referred to her right back as hell. And she candidly told Thomas that she'd prayed for the Duchess's short dispatch. All the fun of the fair. Seriously, though, you might well think I'm just being a gossip, but I would bet the shirt on my back that history has been affected more by these kind of personal relationships than we can measure. Somerset reflected his wife's animosity, treating Catherine dismissively, and even at one stage distributing some of her dower lands without her say-so. At one point, Catherine was so cross, she wrote to Thomas, It was fortunate we were so much distant, for I suppose else I should have bitten him. Which makes an interesting image, the Queen of England sinking her teeth into the Lord Protector's ankles. And Somerset and Catherine basically hated each other. Thomas resented his brother's success and power, and so the two were driven towards conflict. So cross was Thomas that when his brother headed north to continue the war with Scotland, which campaign is obviously much more important than all of this, but I'm in gossip mode, Thomas started to try and ingratiate himself with the young king while his brother was gone. Somerset had a contact in the royal household, a man called John Fowler, and he was basically bribing Fowler to give him access to Edward, paying him a retainer, you might say, an honorarium, a consideration, grease, basically. Seymour dropped poison gently into Edward's ear. Wasn't Somerset mean with the allowance he gave him? He even lent Edward money. Quite what a ten-year-old did with it, I have no idea. He had all the buns his heart could imagine I desire from the king's confectioner. But Somerset was essentially trying to leverage this relationship for his own advantage. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. However, more important at this time possibly will be two other people who became part of Catherine's household. I think in an earlier episode, we'd reflected about the influence that Catherine Parr has on English history through soft influence, spreading of evangelical ideas through the royal household by making it acceptable to hold reformist views. And two people who were also influenced joined Catherine's household at this time, a 14-year-old called Elizabeth, Catherine's stepdaughter, yep, that Elizabeth, and a 10-year-old girl called Jane Grey, yes, that Jane Grey. Let us deal with Jane first. Jane was the daughter of Lady Frances Brandon and Henry Grey, the Marquis of Dorset. The important thing here is that Frances Brandon was the daughter of Mary Tudor, sister of Henry VIII, and so Jane had that most dangerous and vicious of substances flowing through her veins, royal blood. Now, as it happens, Henry VIII had excluded Frances herself from the succession, we know not why, but he did not exclude her heirs. I mean, obviously, Edward was a young, lusty lad and would grow up to breed like a rabbit. But for the moment, well, you know, better safe than sorry, better to define the succession. Now, the Greys were that most marvellous of things, a Leicestershire family, and their family home was Bradgate Park, known locally, of course, as Braggy Park, a place where St David Attenborough would wander as a youth, wondering how fossils could be embedded in granite which was so old, and where the Crowthers have yelled hopelessly for more various temporarily mislaid hounds than you can shake a stick at. It appears that Francis was no more likeable than was Anne Somerset. Hard-riding, cunning and predatory were just a couple of the phrases attached to her. Whatever the truth, Jane appears not to have had a great time of it with her folks growing up, who were very young when they had Jane. Francis and Henry brought their children up in the normal way for the time, but on the stricter side of the available scale. At one point, she was visited with Jane by the academic Roger Ascham, who found her reading Plato, as you do. Obviously, there might have been a Jilly Cooper hidden in the covers, but if so, Jane got away with it, and Ascham never found out. And Ascham actually reported her words, not about Jilly Cooper, obviously. When I am in the presence of either father or mother, whether I speak, keep silent, sit, stand or go, eat, drink, be merry or sad, be sewing, playing, dancing or doing anything else, I must do it as if it were in such weight, measure and number, even so perfectly as God made the world, or else I am so sharply taunted, so cruelly threatened, yes, presently sometimes with pinches, nips and bobs and other ways, that I think myself in hell. Sounds like good and proper parenting to me. In a few years' time, when 16 years old, she will be described physically as This Lady Jane is very short and thin, but prettily shaped and graceful. She has small features and a well-made nose, the mouth flexible and the lips red. The eyebrows are arched and darker than her hair, which is nearly red. Her eyes are sparkling and reddish-brown in colour, her skin freckled, and her teeth white and sharp. The long and short is that Jane was unhappy at home, 
but it's likely she had very little in voice on what happened next. As an heiress with a claim to the throne, Jane was hot property. So, her dad, Henry Gray, had a visitation from the agent of a friend of his, one John Harrington, who came to visit from Thomas Seymour, with a proposal that sounds a bit weird to the modern ear. Why, he said, why doesn't Jane come and live with their household, with Thomas and Queen Catherine? Why doesn't Seymour take her into wardship? Now, you may remember from a previous episode, this was not so unusual in England, though it horrified an Italian visitor. English parents often managed to offload their offspring on other families in the hope they'd help them develop into fully rounded people, develop a network of contacts and, you know, leave the evenings open to the parents for a nice glass of wine, pizza and a video and now and then maybe even putting on the Barry Manilow. This relationship seemed to go a little bit further than normal though, but what swung it here was a promise or a prayer from Seymour. He'd get Jane a good marriage, he said. When asked for specifics, he promised the best marriage to the king himself. Plus, of course, there's a lot of money involved here. £2,000 is what Seymour had to pay for the wardship, and you can be sure he expected to turn a good profit on that very large outlay. Well, Grey was hooked, good and proper, and so his daughter Jane joined the Seymour household. Once there, Catherine appeared to have worked her magic. She was also of an intellectual bent, able to encourage Jane's learning, but recognising and rewarding her, being kind, essentially. And so Jane had, for the moment at least, landed on her feet. The other, far more important member of Catherine and Seymour's household was the Princess Elizabeth. Interestingly, if the Princess Mary had her way, she would have been nowhere near Catherine. Mary was a deeply traditional person, and despite the way her father had treated her at her time in life, she respected and honoured his memory. The sight of Catherine lifting her skirts and legging it over to Thomas Seymour offended her very much. She urged Elizabeth not to stay in Catherine's household, since the "'Scarcely cold body of our king the father has been so shamefully dishonoured by the queen our stepmother.' Elizabeth was already showing a sharp intelligence and the tube of stubbornness. She wrote back tactfully, but stayed right where she was. Before I go on, actually, I would also like to introduce another character to you, one Catherine Ashley, usually known as Cat Ashley. Let me return briefly to the theme that personal relationships probably have more influence on high politics than we can ever know. Cat Ashley was the closest person to Elizabeth until Cat's death in 1565. Born Catherine Campanown, Cat landed a position in Elizabeth's household by 1536. There's quite a lot of confusion about her age. Wikipedia has it as of 1502, others say as late as 1507. The database of National Biography basically points out that she got married in 1545 and that she was likely to have been a teenager, therefore, when she joined court in 1536. That puts her birth date around 1516. But however old she was, it seems that Cat and Elizabeth were tightly bound by bonds of affection and love. She was a mother Elizabeth didn't have. She was a constant companion and confidant. In 1547, then, Cat became Elizabeth's governess, with a lot of influence over Elizabeth's education. And, on her accession to the throne, she became her chief gentlewoman. Elizabeth had no gentlewoman of the stool, but Cat was the closest equivalent. It's difficult to know precisely the level of influence that Cat Ashley has over Elizabeth, but she clearly felt able to speak openly to her. 
she would remain close to her until Cat died, as I said, in 1565, without doubt she had the ability to whisper advice, to nudge the Queen Elizabeth to consider this or that petition or notice this or that courtier. She is apparently the inspiration for Nursey in Blackadder 2, once again demonstrating the quality of Blackadder's historical accuracy. But she appears in a starring role only really in one major incident, which we'll go through now, in which she doesn't really appear in the best light, it has to be said. And Robert Dudley would be constantly irritated by Cat's advocacy of various suitors for Elizabeth's hand, and indeed for the rest of her, obviously. But Cat was fiercely loyal to Elizabeth, willing to risk all for her charge, and Elizabeth would be equally fierce in her defence. They were chumps. They loved each other. So, you mentioned an incident, I hear you ask. Well, Thomas Seymour, as I say, was an ambitious sort of cove. So there he is, sitting pretty with the only queen in town, Catherine Parr, and with an heir to the throne in Jane Grey, and with the young 13-year-old princess, Princess Elizabeth. Now, Thomas Seymour obviously had something, don't know what it was, but whatever it was, it convinces three women, two of whom with demonstrably powerful intellects, to apparently abandon all good sense. So there we are one morning in young Elizabeth's bedchamber, Cat and Elizabeth at least, when in defiance of all protocol, there appeared Thomas Seymour himself. This is most irregular, and after a quick good morning, he disappeared. But slice by slice, Seymour made both of them accustomed to his presence, visiting more often, staying a little bit longer each time. Cat did not do her duty and refuse him entrance, as would be the rule normally. Catherine, see, refused to see any danger in the situation. And Cat would recount later that he would come many mornings into the said Lady Elizabeth's chamber before she was ready, and sometimes before she did rise. And if she were up, he would bid her good morrow and ask her how she did and strike her upon the back or the buttocks familiarly. You really don't touch royal buttocks. Royal buttocks are off limits even under the Norwegian right to roam legislation. Yet, Cat seems to have been enamoured of Seymour and encouraged the pair, failing to intervene in a nighttime boat ride, for example. When Seymour tried to kiss Elizabeth, finally the alarm bells began to ring in Cat's head, especially when Seymour came again and again into Elizabeth's bedchamber, dressed only in his nightgown. So, Cat pressed the red button with Queen Catherine, but she simply refused to take it seriously, Catherine the Parr, that is to say, until one day Catherine Parr came in search of her husband and found him in Elizabeth's arms. Well, finally there was a general dropping of scales, We're now in 1548, by the way, and Elizabeth was banished from the Queen's household. Elizabeth was mortified. Obviously, she was pretty young at the time, and the villain of this piece is Seymour, but Elizabeth herself pretty quickly realised the care she would have to take when a rumour spread that she had actually carried and lost Seymour's child. That really brought it home to her. Now, there's naffle evidence for this, by the way, actually happening, but Elizabeth realised she'd been foolish she learned a lesson, and she also realised that Cat had failed to do her job to protect her. By now, Catherine had retired to her home, Sudley Castle, to have her child, and Seymour joined her there. On the 30th of August, 1548, the happy couple were delivered of a baby child, Mary, and for a few days, all was well. Until the fever struck Catherine, and she fell ill. In her pain, she gave vent to her fury at Seymour's behaviour with Elizabeth, but sadly, before long, she was past caring. 
Catherine Parr died on the 7th of September 1548 and her baby daughter did not survive infancy. Elizabeth was reported to be gutted. But incredibly, Cat's view of the tragedy was that mm, every cloud has its silvery lining, you know. Catherine's death was very sad and all that. But on the other hand, it did mean that her old husband, appointed at the king's death, was free again. And she might have him if she wished. And horribly enough, despite initially delivering a sharp put-down, Cat worked on Elizabeth and Elizabeth once more began to show some interest. Cat Ashley worked remarkably hard at this, brokering communications between Seymour and Elizabeth. Now they all knew that Elizabeth was quite incapable of marrying without the council's permission, but by Christmas 1548 the court was buzzing with rumour that Seymour and the princess would indeed be married. And meanwhile Seymour, if you'll pardon the phrase, was playing silly buggers elsewhere. He just could not live with his brother's success and his own relative powerlessness. He started lobbying the boy king to make him his governor, bad-mouthing his brother Somerset and trying to encourage the lad that through him, Edward could move more quickly to gain his full power. The young Edward, who's about, what, 12 at this stage, seems to have been a man capable of understanding tripe when he heard it. Seymour threw Edward a line. Since I saw you last, you're grown up to be a goodly gentleman. I trust that within three or four years you shall be ruler of your own things. Nay, said Edward. Really? Within three or four years your grace shall be sixteen years old. I trust by that time your grace will help your men yourself with such things as fall in your grace's gift. But Edward gave no reply, gave Seymour no encouragement whatsoever. And so, in January 1549, Seymour really pressed the potty button. He obtained a duplicate key, and he snuck into the king's apartments with two companions. You will scarcely believe it when I say that Seymour seems to have decided that direct action was the obvious and sensible thing to do here. Now, as it happens, Edward unexpectedly had a dog with him, and Doggy knew this chat was up to no good. Doggy barked furiously in defence of his master. Seymour shot Doggy. In England, creeping around, just so you know, creeping around shooting dogs is not a traditional way of courting popularity. Seymour turned and ran for it, the only sensible thing he'd done all day. It's a pretty incomprehensible affair, really. I mean, what was Seymour up to? What was he planning? Honestly, there is no box of cheese so mad, no fruitcake so nutty. It seems impossible to believe he was planning to kill the king, but how was he going to hold on to him once he had him? Unsurprisingly, the next day he was arrested and an investigation was started. All of the shenanigans with Elizabeth now came out into the open. There was again talk of a royal pregnancy. Cat Ashley was sacked from her job as Elizabeth's governess and chucked into the tower. Elizabeth wrote furiously in her defence, it has to be said. But Cat was interrogated. And Somerset, or Hell, as we know her of course, spat that she was not worthy to have the governance of a king's daughter. And Seymour, meanwhile was heading toastwards. 33 accusations were levelled at him, the nub of it being that he planned to kidnap the king and marry the princess. The matter of buttocks came up again. On the 25th of February 1549, Thomas Seymour's Bill of Attainder was debated in Parliament. Seymour's big brother, Protector Somerset, was allowed to be absent as a mercy for him. In the Tower, meanwhile, Seymour managed to secretly make a pen and write letters to the Princess Mary and Princess Elizabeth, urging them to conspire against Edward, cleverly sewing the letters into his clothes where nobody would ever think to look. 
They were, of course, immediately discovered. On the 19th of March, then, 1549, Seymour was duly executed on Tower Hill. Edward's diary entry for the event rather demonstrates the dullness of that document. It read, The Lord Sudley, Admiral of England, was condemned to death and died the march ensuing. OK. Given the effort Seymour had put into ingratiating himself into his nephew's good books, it's slightly disappointing. Even more disappointing, though, was the judgment of his intended Elizabeth, now 15, who rather harshly remarked that there died a man with much wit and very little judgment. Harsh, but fair, maybe. Somerset was clearly gutted to have agreed to the execution of his brother and later lamented that if just Thomas had spoken to him, he'd have made it OK. But look, despite the fact that Seymour was clearly something of a plonker, he had a certain kind of Love Island appeal and a popular charisma. And his execution, unfortunately, did Somerset's reputation no good whatsoever. Dark looks issued from every pub and tavern. The blood of his brother, the Admiral, cried against him before a guard, went the whispers. A lady thrust herself into Somerset's path and spat. Where is thy brother? Lo, his blood crieth against thee unto God from the ground. Don't know where she came from, obviously. Seymour's idiocies had not only brought him death, but had wounded his family's reputation as well. And it is though his brother's career that we must return next time, because I've skipped ahead a bit, for which I apologise profusely. But, you know, I thought I'd try and tell this story in its entirety. So, next time, let's return to the Protectorate. few quick things, then. Firstly, we all three made it. Davy, Izzy and I all did it. Yay. Never again, obviously. But thanks to everyone who sponsored us and to Mark and Simon, who have just both added their donations. You're all very kind. Together, the three of us raised four and a half thousand quid, which is quite a thing. Secondly, if you're looking for guest episodes of the History of England, I have to move them off the main series for iTunes and space reasons. But there's a separate podcast called History of England Guest Episodes, where you can then find them all. Next week, we have a very talented guest episode. They are two bright young things, Wolf O'Neill and the super talented David Crowther. The pair are from a stratospheric new podcast called History in Technicolor, reviewing and rating history films, whatever that means, but you know what I mean. The guest episode will be on Elizabeth, the first 1998 film. Seriously, it suddenly hit me. Now that I'm a multicaster, why should I not have a guest not? Why not me? And so here we are. This week, by the way, we are reviewing Braveheart on History and Technicolor. Seriously, is all I can say. And today's Shedcast for members is on a hero of the people, Rebel Robert Kett. So much great news. See you then. Good luck and have a great week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.